We're, we're going to be in John chapter 5 today. So if you have a Bible, you want to open up to John chapter 5. If you're new with us or you're visiting, uh, what we've been doing over the course of the year is that uh, we've been walking through uh, this kind of the large narrative story of the Bible from Genesis all the way through. We started back in January and we did the, uh, the narrative portions of the Old Testament, all the books Genesis up to Esther, and then we jumped over to the New Testament and we went through the Gospel of Luke and now we're in the Gospel of John and then we'll, after we're done with the Gospel of John, we'll finish the year walking through most of the epistles uh, in the New Testament. And so... There's a, there are these little green books laying around if you were to want to jump in and, and read with us. There's a reading plan that goes with it. And every week we teach about stuff we're going to read about later in the week. And so this morning, uh, we're going to teach from John chapter 5. And we've been doing something a little bit different in the Gospel of John than we did in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke, we kind of worked our way through... Uh, just as the gospel moves and what is Jesus doing and what does that mean and kind of who is he. And John, uh, we're taking kind of large aspects of Jesus's life and ministry, looking at a specific incident of one of those, but talking about kind of the bigger picture of who he is and, and his life and his, his time, three-year time ministering. And so this morning, we're going to look at one miracle, uh, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, John 5. And then, but we're going to talk bigger picture at the same time. What do the miracles of Jesus tell us about who he is? Why does he do them? Uh, how should we view them? Those kinds of things. So we're going to talk generally about miracles while we look specifically at one particular miracle. And it's, like I said, John chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you, God, to... Uh, sing about the truth that you are unstoppable and that your glory goes on and on and that it will do that eternally. Uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to celebrate with uh, a sister in Christ and her baptism. Lord, to be able to see her outward proclamation of her inward faith and God, just to be able to worship you in praise of what you've done in her life and in anticipation of what you will do in and through her life in the future. God, I pray that your spirit would be here this morning. Would you speak to us from your word? Would you make clear to us uh, something about who you are, about who Jesus is, about what it means to live in relationship with him and to follow him with our lives? Uh, God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start uh, by reading John 5, verses 1 to 3. So if you've got a Bible and you want to follow along with me, Here's what it says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a number of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's what we get for the setting of what Jesus is about to do. He goes up to Jerusalem during the time of a festival. If you read all of the Gospel of John, you can track your way through. You can kind of uh, anchor yourself in time a little bit by John's uh, mention of festivals. Three different times he mentions the Passover, Israel's celebration of being rescued out of Egypt. Uh, so three different times he mentions that. At various points he mentions other festivals by name, some of them by name. This particular one, he just says there was a festival happening and Jesus goes to Jerusalem in order to celebrate that. Throughout the Gospel of John, you can kind of 
track time and Jesus's movement based on these festivals. John uses them as kind of an anchor for what Jesus is doing. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he goes to a very specific area and John wants to describe it very, very clearly. He goes to a pool called Bethesda. It's near what was known as the Sheep Gate. In the book of Nehemiah, when the Israelites rebuild the wall after returning from exile, four different times, Nehemiah actually mentions the Sheep Gate. It's on the northeast kind of corner of the city. It's a small little opening where uh, people could literally take their uh, herds in and out of the city should they need to. Right near that gate, there's a pool. But it's not just any pool. It has a very specific purpose, a very specific identity. Around this pool, there were what John calls five roofed colonnades or porticos, depending on how your translation uh, renders that word. They were there. They were built in order to provide shade. The question is, who were they providing shade for? Verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids. Invalids sounds like a harsh word. Uh, John is using it as a catch-all term for there are a large multitude of people with various life-affecting diseases or afflictions. He goes on to mention some of those. Some are blind, some are lame, some are paralyzed, which leads us to the question, why are they at this particular pool? If you've got a Bible, go ahead and look at it. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, you may notice that the next thing that comes in your Bible is verse 5. That's not normally how we count. 1, 2, 3. Verse 4 in many translations is missing, or you may have a footnote that directs you to the bottom where it gives you verse 4. I could spend a lot of time, I could probably spend most of my time this morning talking about why verse 4 is or is not included in your particular translation, but let me give you the short answer. Uh, there is some conflict over whether or not verse 4 was written by John or whether it was added later by someone else. And so John sits down and he writes the Gospel of John. He doesn't put chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, whatever. He doesn't put the verse markings in there. He writes like authors write today. Sometime later, people went back and they added in chapter and verse so it was easier to navigate the various books of the Bible. The hypothesis is that someone added a phrase in verse 4, and scholars can't really agree on whether it's an addition or whether John wrote it himself initially. Regardless, it gives us a little insight into why people with these various diseases may have been gathering at this pool. And so my uh, version, my ESV, puts verse 4 down at the bottom, and it says that uh, the following. So the end of verse 3 is that, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 4, waiting for the stirring of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's why people are gathered at the pool. That's why multitudes of individuals who are blind or lame or paralyzed or have some other unnamed or incurable disease would gather by the side of this pool. There was a belief that at certain times the waters would be stirred and that the first person who got into the water would be healed. That being the case, large quantities of people would just wait there 
This isn't a handful. It's not five or six individuals. It's multitudes of people. And don't let kind of the scene here be lost on you as we continue to walk through. This was not a pool where people would go to hang out and get tan. The scene is terrible. Sick people with unidentified and seemingly incurable diseases laying under one of these shaded colonnades, blind individuals huddled near the edge of the water, hoping to hear it as it's stirred and be able to launch themselves into the pool before somebody else gets in there before them, all with the hope that being the first one in there would mean that their blindness would be cured. Feverish people who are confined to the shaded areas under the porticos unless uh, they would otherwise feel like they're literally cooking from the inside and the outside at the same time. Withered, paralyzed, lame individuals who can't make it to the edge of the water on their own or whose only hope is to crawl their way over the top of other people hoping to make it into the water. It likely would have not smelled very pleasant. It's highly likely that there would have been deceased individuals laying there whose illness had taken their life. That's the scene. It's utterly hopeless. That's what John's trying to communicate. The scene is completely hopeless. But it's into that hopelessness that Jesus, upon arriving in Jerusalem, decides to go first. He shows up for this festival and he says, I want to go to this pool that is completely hopeless in every single way. And when he shows up, that place goes from hopeless to full of hope. It goes from a place that's marked by the presence of disease and the evidence of brokenness into a place that's radiating with the light and the hope and the glory of a Savior. Why? Because when Jesus shows up in a place, hope comes with him. Always. That's how it works throughout the Gospels and in a much larger sort of macro sort of way. That's how Jesus' very life operates. All of humanity marked by, marred by, lost in, slave to their own sinful human condition without hope. And then Jesus is born into the world and with him comes hope. In all of the situations that Jesus finds himself in, he brings hope with him. That's why crowds of people flock to him throughout his ministry. The presence of Jesus makes even the most hopeless of situations hopeful. And don't come grab me afterward and say there's a typo on your slide. No, I mean hopeful. It is full of hope, brimming with it, overflowing with it. When Jesus arrives here at the pool of Bethesda, it goes from dark and broken to just teeming with hope. It's full of it. Late last week, Wednesday and Thursday, uh, myself and Kurt Huber and Corey Thomason spent some time in Houston. It seems very hopeless there for just blocks and blocks in certain neighborhoods. There are 10 foot high piles of everything that a person had within their home. All of their sheetrock, all of their drywall, all of their carpeting, all of their possessions, just littered on the side of the street, waiting for a dump truck to come and pick it all up and take it away. Their houses are completely gutted. They need three, four, five weeks to dry out so that then they can try to figure out whether or not they can rebuild on their particular property. 
20, only 20% of people affected by the flood had flood insurance because the flood so far exceeded the floodplain that 80% of people didn't even have flood insurance. And so there's this hopeless feeling prospect of my entire life has been destroyed and the only means I have to rebuild is whatever's in the savings account or I take out a huge loan. It seems hopeless. And as we're driving around and and kind of observing that, we saw something operating at the exact same time. We saw churches sending teams of people out into these neighborhoods to help people gut out their homes. Churches that are ready to send teams of people out to help people rebuild their homes. The body of Christ, the presence of Jesus in his followers, bringing hope into a hopeless situation because that's how the gospel works. When Jesus shows up in a place, it goes from hopeless to hopeful. If you can remember uh, last week, Joe, our missions pastor, taught, and, and he read a verse from John chapter 1 that is the essence of who Jesus Christ is. It says this, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 4 and 5. Here at the Pool of Bethesda, in the first four verses, light and life literally saunters its way into the midst of death and darkness. And with him comes hope. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. One man was there who had been an invalid, For 38 years. Your translation might say he had been lame for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down the steps, another steps down before me. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. John zooms in from this great multitude to one man. Because Jesus does the same thing. He walks in, he sees this great multitude, and he focuses in on one particular individual. We're given some details about him. He's been lame for 38 years. Why is that included? We don't know exactly what the disease is, but verse 8 makes it clear that he has trouble walking. He can't get himself down into the waters when they're stirred unless someone helps him. That detail is important because John wants you to understand how utterly hopeless this man is. I haven't been able to walk for 38 years. He's obviously been laying next to the pool for some amount of time because he's got this repeated frustration of not being able to get into the water when it's stirred. There's no hope for a cure for this guy. There's maybe an outside chance that at the right moment he's able to get himself into the water, but then there's probably no guarantee that he actually is cured. Then there's another important detail. The very beginning of verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. There's an unnamed man with an unnamed illness and yet Jesus sees him and knows him He knows everything about his struggle, about the length of time that it's been happening, and he absolutely knows the cure. This is something that I hope has been evident along uh, the way here over the course of this year. If you've been reading along with us in Scripture, or even if you've just been hearing us teach about it on Sunday mornings, this should be very apparent, but it's worth going ahead and pointing out the obvious, and that's this, that God 
is personal. He's personal. He always has been. He speaks Adam and Eve into existence, places them in the garden, gives them a task, lives alongside them, talks to them. He makes a promise with Abraham. He wrestles with Jacob. He's present with Joseph through his struggles and his triumphs. He hears Israel's groaning in Egypt, and we're told that he remembers them, and he personally leads them out. He guided them in the desert. He drove out the nations of the that were present in the promised land. He anoints David as king. He speaks through prophets, calling and begging his people to return to him. God is personal. He always has been personal. He's working for the good of all of humanity, but he's absolutely working for the good of every human. It's not just a nameless and faceless crowd that exists before the Lord. It is a mass of individuals, fearfully and wonderfully and intentionally Made. And when Jesus walks into this pool at Bethesda and there is a multitude of people there, he sees individuals because he is personal. For the sake of his name and his glory, God wants to draw people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue into faithful worship of him. He wants individuals from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And so Jesus sees this man and he asks him a question. Do you want to be healed? Seems straightforward. But his answer in verse 7 reveals what one commentator calls his own God confusion. That's where I want to spend a little bit of time this morning. Let me reread what the man says to Jesus in John 5 verse 7. Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, another steps down before me. The man is confused in a very specific way. He thinks that God is going to operate or that God does operate through some impersonal force that exists in the water only when they're churned up. That maybe God sends an angel and stirs up the water in order to heal people. But what he doesn't realize is that God is personal and he's having a personal interaction with him right now. He's about to get a powerful lesson in the personal nature of God. And so are we. And I want to kind of help us think through this through the lens of two questions that you can kind of chew on a little bit more later. The first question is the same one that Jesus asks in verse 6. Do you want to be healed? I'm being completely serious. Do you want to be healed? Our Kent Hughes says that few things hamper the gracious work of Christ in our lives more than our response to this question. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, a multitude of people in this room, he's looking at you right now, dead in the eye, and asking you, do you want to be healed? You may become here every Sunday. You hear the message of the gospel from whoever it is that stands up here and teaches on any given Sunday morning, and you understand it. You hear us talk about who Jesus is and what his life was and the reality of our broken human condition, and you resonate with that. And yet, there's something that stops you from actually professing faith in that, from your heart actually moving into a place of Acknowledging that Jesus Christ alone is Savior. It's because when asked the question, do you want to be healed? You're kind of like the man in the story. What's the quick answer? Yes. But what does he do instead? Offers the reasons why he can't be healed. 
you might be here every Sunday morning and hear us talk about the gospel and understand it in your mind. And when Jesus poses the question to your heart, do you want to be healed? You offer excuses why you can't be. I'm too sinful. God couldn't possibly love me. Or maybe there's actually something about the brokenness and sinfulness of your life that you actually take comfort in. Maybe you think it's better to sit in the reality of your own brokenness than it is to trust in the truth that there's a God who knows and loves you personally and intimately. Maybe the thought of placing your faith in Jesus means that you would have to walk away from something, something you know that ultimately is harmful to you, big picture, long run, but that is scary to leave. And so you sit here Sunday after Sunday or you stumble into church every once in a while and you hear somebody talk about Jesus and the gospel and you arrive at that point of do you want to be healed and you just kind of sit there in your own heart and you say, I'm not sure I actually do. You might be here this morning and you are a believer. You have placed your faith in Christ. The question doesn't change. Do you want to be healed? Every day, every situation, every sinful attitude, every broken heart condition, every behavior, do you want to be healed? Let me just take uh, some of the questioning out of this for you. I know personally that oftentimes the answer is not really. That we understand acutely our own areas of lingering sinfulness despite the fact that we have been saved. You don't get saved and then become perfect. You get saved and then have a very clear awareness of your own areas of sin. And when we come to scripture, we come before the Lord in prayer and we feel that nudging. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be free from this? Do you want to be transformed? And we just clam up. I don't know. I don't know if I do. I don't know if I want to stop harboring this bitterness. I don't know if I actually want to be reconciled in this relationship. I don't know if I want to step away from the pornography. I don't know if I want to give up the gossip. I don't know if I want to lay down my pride. I don't know if I want to crush this idol. I don't know if I want to step away from this addiction. We hear Jesus offer us life to the full, and yet honestly, in our own hearts, we think to ourselves, I think I'm good with significantly less than halfway full. Do you want to be healed? Question number one. Question number two. Are you maybe a little bit God-confused? Do you have some sort of pool of Bethesda in your life? And let me tell you what this one most typically plays out as. I think most of us in this room, if we're believers in Jesus, would agree that karma is not a thing. Karma doesn't actually exist out there in the world. And yet we behave functionally as if it does. We get into a string of life where things don't seem to be going our way, a season where we get a a chunk of some setbacks or some difficulties or some frustrations, and we kind of start to think in the back of our head, if I just do enough good stuff here over the next week, I'll turn this thing around for myself. I'll just cast enough good behavior up into the air, and God will see that and shift it for me. If I just get enough good juju out there into the environment around me, everything is going to get better. You trust that Jesus is your Savior, but you kind of live like your behavior is the actual thing that's going to either save you or help you or change you. 
It's like a pool of Bethesda. This man's having an interaction with a personal savior. He's talking to Jesus who can ultimately heal him. And he says, I think it's actually the water. If I could just get into the water faster, I would be healed. You've got a relationship with a personal savior. And you kind of think to yourself, if I could just do some more good stuff, some more good stuff would happen in my life. If I could just come up with the right words to the prayer, then I could unlock the mystery of having everything that I've ever wanted. If I could just say it the right way, if I could just get the formula down, then God would give me everything that I asked him. We're not interacting with some mythical kind of spiritual force that just exists out in the world. No, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a personal relationship with a God who knows you intimately. A personal relationship. The story goes on. The next two verses, verses 8 and 9, are absolutely breathtaking. The man says, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I go down, another steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. The man is healed by the power of God. It is an act of faith to actually get up and walk, though. Kind of go with me here for a second. He's been sick, lame, for 38 years. Imagine the number of times he's tried to walk. 38 years worth of time? He's probably tried to walk a thousand times a year for 38 years. And this man walks up to him in the middle of this crowd of people who are also sick, asks him if he wants to be well. The guy doesn't really answer the question. And then Jesus says, get up, take your mat and walk. The faith required to try to stand in that moment. I probably would have said, okay, cool. I've tried this before. I'm not really interested in trying again. He's healed by the power of God through his faith in the work of Jesus. The same way it works for us when we come to faith. We're saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. God is powerful. 38 years worth of lying lame on that mat, and now he's carrying it out of the portico. Years of waiting near the pool of Bethesda, and now he's walking away from it in an instant. The issue isn't that God just suddenly became powerful. It's that he's always been powerful and it's just broken into this guy's life in an amazing sort of way. And this is the God who spoke and created everything, who flooded the earth with a snap of his fingers, who performed the plagues that brought Israel out of Egypt, who tumbled the walls of Jericho at the sound of a couple of trumpets. He's powerful. And when it breaks into this man's life, it literally changes everything. I mean, can you imagine the image of him carrying his mat? He's laying there, and there are a multitude of other sick individuals, and the guy that's been laying as my next-door neighbor for years just stood up and rolled up his little mat and is walking out of the portico. Somebody probably said, oh, hey, um, you didn't get in the water. What just happened? is that he had a personal interaction with a powerful God. And him walking out of there carrying his mat just screams the proclamation of God's glory and God's power. Spiritually, if you have been similarly healed, 
You understand that by faith in Jesus Christ, you have gone from death to life. Your life should scream the power and the glory of the God who has healed you and saved you. Jesus catches up with this man a little bit later in the temple. It's in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. To which the man probably replied, Duh. I don't need to see that. I'm feeling it. And Jesus says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And I want an important theological distinction here. Our sin does not go one for one with God's punishment. This guy didn't sin a bunch and got sentenced to 38 years of lameness. That's not how it works. Jesus isn't saying if you sin one more time, you're going to go back to the pool of Bethesda. He's saying sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you in a very spiritual sort of sense. Walk in faith of me as the Savior, as the healer, so that eternal separation from the Lord does not happen to you. That is the worst thing in this moment. It's like Jesus says, look, you've been healed and you're carrying your mat, but at some point you're going to stop carrying the mat so you can do something else and something should scream just as loudly as that mat tucked under your arm and it should be your transformed life. That's how our lives should be. The most powerful apologetic in all of the world to all of the people that you interact with for the reality of a God who not only has saved you from sin but transformed your life is evidence of a transformed life. That you live in such a way that you allow the power of God to work through you personally to change you from the inside out and people around you think that can't possibly be because of her. That can't possibly be because of him. Something has transformed this person. God is personal. And he's powerful. And we need those realities to come to bear on our lives one time for salvation and then every day thereafter as we walk with him. And so another question for you to think about later. Do you have faith in the power of God? I'm not talking about some sort of strange kind of name it and claim it theology where like if I just come before the Lord and I speak something into existence, then God is going to give it to me. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm being serious. Do you have faith in the limitless, boundless, glory displaying, humanity saving, life transforming, soul satisfying power of God? Most of us would say yes. If we've placed our faith in Christ, most of us would say, I absolutely believe in that. But then something would give us away. And the something is the way that we often pray. Do you remember when you were a kid and you wanted to have somebody spend the night, but you knew that like maybe your family had had a lot going on and mom and dad weren't going to be crazy about it, and so you went to them to ask, and you felt like you needed to like prime the pump before you actually sent the ask out there. Look, um, I know we've got a lot going on, And I have three soccer games tomorrow, but I was wondering, and I'll clean my room. And also, I won't complain when I unload the dishwasher tomorrow. I was wondering if maybe Johnny could just spend the night. We pray that way. We come before the God of the universe 
who by his very power spoke everything into existence, resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead, right? That's the God we're talking about. Healed this guy at the pool of Bethesda, walked on water, fed 5,000 people. We come before him and we say, if you would just, oh God, if you would just, God, could you just, God doesn't want to just do anything. It's not like he's scraping by with the amount of power that he has. It's not like he could maybe muster up enough ability to reconcile that relationship you're talking about, to move powerfully in that situation you have going on. It's that he is overflowing with that ability and he wants it to break through personally in your life so that other people see his glory in the world. It's not just anything. Yes, I believe in the power of God. But when I come before him to pray, it's like I'm begging him to do something very little and trite. He's powerful. He's personally powerful. If we have faith in that, we can come before him knowing that in that sort of way. This story here in John chapter 5 has a really bizarre sort of ending. If you've got a Bible that puts the, word of Je- the words of Jesus in red, just look at it really quickly, even visually. Verses 5 through 18 are mostly in black because that's John narrating the story of Jesus healing this man. Then verses 19 through the end of the chapter are almost all in red as Jesus speaks. What happens is that Jesus heals this man and it happens to be on the Sabbath. The guy picks up his mat and he walks out of the pool at Bethesda and he interacts with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have these long lists, 29 different lists of things you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath because they constitute work. They see him carrying his mat and it violates one of the lists. And so they ask him, what in the world are you doing carrying your mat on a Sunday, you sinner? And he says, well, the guy who healed me told me to take up my mat. And to walk. It sounds a lot like the garden. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. God says to Adam, what are you doing? Well, the woman you put here. And then God asks Eve and she says, well, the serpent you put here, right? He kind of tries to pass the buck onto Jesus. So the Pharisees confront Jesus. How dare you do this healing on the Sabbath? How dare you tell this guy to carry his mat on a Sunday? Well, it wasn't a Sunday. On the Sabbath. They're God-confused as well because they think that the power of God is found in their list of rules, not in a personal relationship with the Lord. And so Jesus challenges him or challenges them directly. He's just done something remarkable. It's a miracle. And he uses their strange response in order to teach a ton about who he is, that he has authority as the Son of God, that he's a witness to the very, uh, uh, to the very work of God himself. And he ends that response by telling them, greater works than these will he, God, show you so that you may marvel. That's the purpose of the miraculous works of Jesus all throughout the Gospels. They have unbelievable results for humanity and his work often still does in our lives. But more than that, they are supposed to leave us in awe of him because Jesus is the perfect personification of a God who is personal and powerful. John 5, 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. All of Jesus' miracles ultimately pale in comparison to what happens when Jesus walks out of the tomb. I just healed a guy at this pool. I'm going to rise from the dead. I just multiplied some fish and bread. I'm literally going to come back to life. Greater works than these will he show so that you may marvel. And that's exactly what we should do. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up. If you're here this morning and you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to read the rest of the Gospel of John with us. See who God is. See who Jesus is. The very end of John chapter 5, Jesus says that the scriptures bear witness to me, to Jesus. Join us as we walk through the rest of the Gospel of John. See God for who he is in the person of Jesus. See his personal, powerful nature. See the way he displays the goodness of his character and the glory of his reality all through the life of Jesus. If you're here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to really chew on those three questions. Do you want to be healed? Whatever area of brokenness still exists within your heart, whatever fractured relationships you might have, do you want to be healed? And then do you have some God confusion about how that could happen? It's not going to happen via any other means than the personal, powerful work of God in your life. And do you have faith in his power to act on your behalf? I want to invite you to kind of think about those as we worship this morning. We're going to sing a new song. It's called uh, Miracles, right? Yes. Uh, The chorus is, I believe in you. You're the God of miracles. It's a powerful truth. But as we sing that, I want you to kind of think about, do you want to be healed? Do you have an accurate understanding of the fact that Jesus, that God, is the only means by which true healing could ever come into your life? And do you believe in his power to act in your situation, in your circumstances? Let's stand up and sing together.